we're in a series looking at Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 for the next several weeks. We're going to be looking at this, this uh, topic of, of spiritual warfare as Paul addresses it here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, which can be kind of an odd topic at some times, but uh, is nonetheless um, so crucial and so important for us as believers as we endeavor to live the Christian life uh, in this particular age. And uh, we're going to be just walking through this text slowly but surely over the next several weeks, and, and uh, I'm looking forward very much to that. I got to spend uh, a few months in this text last spring, and uh, was just uh, so, uh, found it so formative and so helpful, and, and so I want to um, pass on to you what uh, I've just found so nourishing in this text here. So, we're going to look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray again for a moment before we get into it. Father, we know that we can do nothing apart from you, and so we ask for your help now. We need help even to hear and believe and obey your word from you. We cannot do that in our own strength, and so we pray that you would, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, make this word fruitful and powerful in our lives and in our life together as a church. Lord, I pray that the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, Alan is a Christian but is struggling deeply with the assurance of his salvation. And on a regular basis, Alan will, sometimes daily, just have accusing thoughts that assail and assault his mind. Thoughts will, will torment him. Thoughts like, uh, no, no God would ever love someone like you. You can't be a Christian. Thoughts like, you can't be a Christian because no Christian would sin like you sin. Thoughts like, uh, you're faking this whole thing. You should just give up the act. Everyone knows you're faking this. Give it up. Thoughts like this torment Alan, sometimes on a daily basis, and he rarely experiences relief from this kind of thing. Lola has been a Christian for a while. She grew up in the church. She was baptized when she was 13 years old. She's been walking with Christ for uh, that amount of time. She's off to college now. So she's in young adulthood uh, and she's just moved out of her parents' house for uh, the first time ever. She's on her own. And for the first time ever, she's struggling deeply with feeling any sort of motivation at all in living the Christian life, seeking God, seeking his kingdom. And she knows that she should care about engaging in the scriptures and engaging in prayer and, 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 and being in fellowship with God's people. She knows that she should care about the lostness of her co-workers and friends. She knows that she should care about the plight of the poor and the marginalized, but she just doesn't care. She's disinterested in doing anything having to do with Christian life and Christian mission. And so she mainly concerns herself in her free time with her social media presence and her favorite shows on Netflix. Hermione came to faith fairly recently. 
And a friend at work shared the gospel with her and invited her to church, and she attended for a little bit, and then she began to believe the gospel, and it was glorious, and she, she was uh, baptized and added to the church, and it was such a beautiful thing, and now she's really excited about reading and understanding and obeying the scriptures, and, and uh, th- she's really excited about this, it's a beautiful thing. A few weeks ago, though, a couple of young men knocked on her door and asked if they could talk with her about the scriptures. And, and, you know, immediately she's just so excited about talking about the scriptures, being passionate about the scriptures. And so she invites them in and they, they talk about the scriptures. But after they talk, she began to be confused. They told her that she wasn't understanding the Bible correctly and that she needed some additional sacred books in order to guide her. And, and they're telling her things that aren't consistent with what she learned from her church. And, and, and she's starting to think that maybe, just maybe, that these two men, these two young men have a better handle on the truth than, than her local church does. And, and, and so she's starting to, to believe what they're saying. Dante has been a member of his church for a while now. And he's very passionate about good theology, and rightly so. But he fancies himself something of a warrior for truth, and, and as such, he, he gets in tussles fairly often with other church members about tertiary doctrinal matters, and uh, sometimes about politics, sometimes about minor offenses that he just can't seem to let go, sometimes about little cultural things at the church that just kind of bother him. And at this point, he's, he's isolated several church members, and he feels good about making them feel smaller, at least making himself feel right. Ulysses is a good and godly dad. He and his wife, Uma, she's also a good and godly mother, and they've been trying to evangelize their oldest child, who's well into her teenage years. But she's growing more and more distant. She doesn't believe the gospel that her parents have been telling her about her whole life. She doesn't believe in the scriptures that they've read to her throughout her whole life. And she's in this state of utter unbelief and they don't know what to do. And lastly, Tabitha. She's been a Christian for some time. She's an adult now. Her parents raised her in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They raised her in the church, and, and she's read through the entirety of the scripture several times. She's, she's memorized uh, numbers, of, uh, numbers of verses in Sunday school, and she knows a good deal about the Bible's teaching. However, recently, she's been facing a great deal of temptation in her life. She's been feeling that her time in the scriptures and in prayer and with God's people is not necessarily the best use of her time. And there's also a a young man that she works with who's showing interest in her, and and he's not a Christian. And she knows what the scriptures say about being unequally yoked, and she knows that if she dated him that there'd be a great deal of uh, uh, additional temptations that she would face, but he's nice and attractive and she's lonely. So she's feeling more and more drawn away from God's kingdom and people and more and more drawn into sin and worldliness. She's dealing with strong, strong temptation. Now each of these instances are incredibly common. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, the chances are is that you've either gone through something like this, some sort of struggle like this yourself, or you've seen others go through something like this. But what's more is is that while we may not readily, as readily recognize uh, 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 these, these occasions, these are occasions in which we must engage in, in what is often called spiritual warfare. 
Because these occasions, occasions such as these and others like them, sometimes, perhaps we should say often, find their origin in something that we cannot see, something beyond what is immediately apparent. Occurrences like these are partly due to the work of personal spiritual forces of evil that the scriptures call Satan or the devil and demons. Now on this side of the so-called enlightenment, we as modern Western people are not as apt to attribute things to Satan and and demons uh, as much as we might once have been. Many today think that this biblical teaching on the subject is just just kind of folklore. It's a kind of folklore of sorts. And and even within our particular tribe of of Christianity, we're not immune to the effects of of the Enlightenment. A few hundred years ago, uh, our, our theological forefathers would talk extensively about and write about and preach about uh, the subject of spiritual warfare. They talked uh, of, of spiritual warfare as being a battle with the world as a system of evil, about uh, battle with the, the flesh, which is our sinful nature, and battle with the devil, which is the personal fallen angelic being who is followed by a host of demons who are also personal evil angelic beings. And yet, in our theological tribe today, and in our circles today, when we think of fighting to live the Christian life, and on the Christian and, and, and fighting to live on the Christian mission, we likely think of the Christian's battle as being with the flesh, and we likely think of the Christian battle as being against the world and its systems of evil. And and and, and the problem is that we are probably a lot less likely to think about the Christian's battle being against Satan and demons. And the three of them work together, and 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 we'll explore a bit of that next week. But still. In order to be biblical, we need to understand and see the reality that there are real personal spiritual forces of evil that are opposed to us and want to stop us and destroy us as God's beloved people. And in fact, if we don't understand that and live according to that reality, we are setting ourselves up for a deficient Christian life. You see, we need to know that there's a battle going on, a war that's been waged. We need to understand something of who our enemy is in this battle, and we have to have confidence and courage and resources to fight in this battle. My hope is to cover all of that and more in in this series. But to begin with, this morning I want to read Ephesians 6, 10-13, and I want to look at the Christian's battle, the Christian's enemy, and the Christian's strength. So let's dig into Ephesians 6, 10-13 here. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, first we'll look at the Christian's battle. We'll pick it back up in verse 11 here. And Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, here we're confronted with the issue that the Christian life comes with a battle. It comes with a war. Now, now many preachers and, and Christians today are often guilty of portraying the Christian life as a way of life which is easier and more comfortable than life prior. And sometimes that might be true in some ways, but it, it doesn't give the whole story because when you become a Christian, you gain a new enemy, and with that, you gain a new battle. You gain a war. And look at the language used. And two words that I want to draw your attention to. The first word is the word wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And this is actually not the usual word used in, in association with, with fighting and warfare in the scriptures. And, and this word gives us a picture of, of a fight that's up close and personal and, and particularly desperate. This gives us a picture not of having a good distance between you and your, your opponent, uh, wherein you like throw spears at each other or shoot darts at each other or something. It gives a picture of an up-close and personal and desperate fight. You're grappling with your enemy in, a, in the fight for your life. And there's also the word stand, this word stand. And Paul actually uses this word a lot in this passage. You'll see him, if you read all, all the way down to verse 20, you'll see Paul use this word a lot, stand. And this, this word stand shows us something about the nature of our fight. It's a word that shows that our fight is one of defense, not offense. You're not to, not to, the, the call is not to attack. You don't go around looking for, for a spiritual fight, but eventually, if you're in Christ, it will come to you, and the call is to stand your ground, to hold your ground, to withstand, to put up an adequate defense, to fight, to hold your place. And so you see, this passage shows us that the Christian life involves battle, fighting, warfare, struggle, resistance, defense against our spiritual enemy. Now, prior to conversion, you know, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 will show us that we didn't have an enemy, we didn't have this battle. In fact, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 shows us that we were under the sway of Satan and the demonic forces of evil. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul writes there that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying prior to conversion, in our sinful nature, apart from the regenerating grace of God, we are all just going with the flow of Satan in this world. As G.K. Chesterton once said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. And that's what happens when you're made alive in Christ. You start to go against your sinful nature. You start to go against the patterns of this world. You start to aggravate Satan and demonic forces, and thus you gain a new battle as a Christian. It's kind of like the Matrix. If you've seen the Matrix, it's Keanu Reeves, and uh, it's unbelievably cheesy. Um, but uh, it, it illustrates something for us here, and I'm going to give a spoiler, um, which is, I mean, really okay, because if you haven't seen it, I mean, it's over 20 years old, so you're probably not going to watch it next week. It's okay. Um, 
But uh, at the beginning of the movie, Reeves' character is this man named Neo, and he's living this kind of normal, go-with-the-flow sort of life. He goes to work in his cubicle every day. He goes home and eats dinner and goes to sleep. There's nothing abnormal or particularly odd about his life, and he seems to be kind of just comfortably numb. But then one day, long story short, he comes into contact with this man named Morpheus, which is Samuel L. Jackson, and Morpheus exposes Neo to this whole other reality, And he shows Neo that his life as he knows it is actually a simulation and that he's actually heavily sedated in a tube somewhere and the simulation is being fed to his mind through this cord in the back of his head and that there's actually a war going on in reality for the human race. And, 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 and so he's got a choice. He's got this choice. He's presented with two pills. He's presented with a blue pill and a red pill. And the blue pill will return Neo to his life as it was before, and he'll forget all about this whole thing. But if he takes the red pill, he wakes up from his sedated state, and he enters into the fight. He wakes up to a, a new battle, and that's what happens for those of us in Christ. When we are regenerated and made alive in Christ, we wake up to a new battle, a spiritual battle, which requires us to fight. And now, if, if, you're, if, if, if we're going to fight, we need to know something, though, of our enemy. Look with me next at the Christian's enemy. And here, let's read verses 11 and 12 again. Paul says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here we're introduced to this enemy that we have. And this is the same being that Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2 when he talks about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's the same one. And here he calls him the devil. The devil. The actual Greek word is the word diabolus. You know, you, you, know, you probably recognize the word diabolical. And uh, it, it literally means to be a liar, to be a slanderer. Satan is the liar, the slanderer. And scripture portrays him as the sort of chief among the, the, the fallen angels because he's not the only fallen angel, but he's often singled out as God's enemy and our enemy. And that's because he's like the chief among these fallen angels. And and of course, he's followed by this enormous army of fallen angels, which we often call demons. And it's those demons that Paul is talking about when he uh, says that we battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You might wonder, why does he say all that? That's just a mouthful for, he could have just said demons. Well, he, he says that because He's trying to show us, he says, you know, the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says this because he's trying to show us how formidable our enemy is. He's trying to show that these demonic entities have real power and authority in this fallen world and that we, therefore, ought to be on our guard and not to take them lightly. Not take them lightly, because here's the thing, the devil and these demons are are powerful forces in this world, they have authority in this fallen world, and they are seeking to thwart God's work and ruin God's people in this world. They are your enemy. And Paul says that the devil has these, these schemes, 
You've got to put on the whole armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's got these, these schemes or these, these plans. Or the actual word is the word uh, methodeo, which is the word that we get the word uh, method from. He's got these, these methodical plans to thwart God's work and to ruin God's people in this world. And these plans are carried out by this powerful army of demonic forces intent to do you harm. Now, as we consider... The, the scripture's teaching about Satan and demons. I, I want to recognize, just for a moment, do a little aside, I want to recognize that this can s- kind of seem sort of weird for those of you who are not Christians, I'm sure. So many would think that belief in, in such beings, such creatures, is absolutely ludicrous. However, mo- most people in history, and even throughout the world today, don't actually think belief in spiritual forces of evil to be ludicrous. If you were to tally your average human being that lived throughout history, concerning whether or not they believed in in, in personal spiritual forces of evil. The vast majority would say that they do. And that's not only throughout history, that's actually throughout the world today. If you were to consult your average person living in, in Africa, South America, Asia today, they wouldn't think this belief ludicrous. They would think it a fact and would actually likely tell you that it really helps explain why the, the world is the way that it is and, and would probably think we're ludicrous for, for not believing them in as, as modern Western people. And so remember, they have wisdom too. The people throughout history, people throughout the world today, remember that they have wise things to say about the subject. Remember that we modern Western people are not more enlightened than the rest of the world. We need to be very careful against falling into chronological uh, snobbery and cultural supremacy and all the rest of that nonsense. Don't be arrogant. We need to be careful here. But what's more is that even for those of us who don't have a huge problem with affirming the reality of personal spiritual forms of evil, Satan and demons, because this, this, for those of us in the West, this naturalistic, rationalistic age is just the, 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 the water that we swim in, Even if we do affirm this belief on paper, far too often do we dismiss it in real life. If you're a Christian, I'm just assuming that you believe in in the existence of Satan and demons. I mean, the Bible's just so clear about their existence. And yet, when was the last time that you actually gave a thought to it? When was the last time that you considered that you have enemies that are intent on doing you harm and those that you love in the church and, 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 and others harm and, and, and which is seeking to make you unfruitful in the Christian life? Well, C.S. Lewis was right when he once wrote that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we might tend to fall on the side of disbelieving in their their existence, if not confessionally, then at least functionally. And so we need to be careful here. Don't be so attentive, so overly attentive to the things that you can see to the point where you are inattentive to the things that you can't see. You need to be wise to the devil and his scheme so that you can stand against them when the day comes. And that's really the important part here, being wise to the devil's schemes and demons' schemes. You know, one pastor used the illustration of of Mike Tyson uh, to, to illustrate this. Tyson, one of the greatest boxers, 
of all time to ever live. And he knocked out pretty much every single one of his, his opponents that he went up against. And, and he was the youngest heavyweight champion of the world. And many seem to think that his skills in fighting were due to his, his kind of sheer aggression and power in the ring, which he so uh, demonstrably showed. But the reality is m- more complicated than that. He would spend hundreds of hours watching videos of his upcoming opponent's former fights to study them, to know their, their tendencies and their fighting styles. And he, he wanted to and did know his opponents when he stepped into that ring. His maxim was this. He said, to beat your opponent, you need to know your opponent. And part of what's so interesting is that the first time Tyson was ever knocked out in the ring was when he went up against Buster Douglas and everyone expected Tyson to, to knock Douglas out, and by all accounts, he, he should have done it. But the problem is that Tyson didn't actually train properly leading up to the fight, and he didn't watch any videos of Douglas who went on to win the fight and knock out Tyson. He had forgotten his own maxim. You need to know your enemy. Friends, you need to be on alert and to be wise. You need to be wise to the schemes of the devil. And here's where I kind of want to turn to a, a little more kind of application and, 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 and help us recognize the enemy's schemes, because in all reality, you very well may not have any demonstrably apparent encounters with demons. You know, we often think about Satan and demons. We think about heads uh, turning 360 degrees and vomiting, and what's that movie called? Um, what's, I, the Exorcist, yes. You might think of like The Exorcist. The reality is that you very well may not ever come into contact with anything of that sort, but that doesn't mean that Satan and demons are not opposing you. Dallas Willard once said, he said that when Satan uh, sought to undermine and draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. You see, much of our battle goes on within our thought life and within our own hearts and with outward temptation and opposition that looks fairly natural in many ways. But it's the devil and his schemes against us, and so we need to be wise to his schemes. So one of the enemy's schemes is is that we need to recognize is is that of accusation. Accusation. We started our time with hearing about Alan and his dealing with with his struggle with accusation. And uh, Alan had been suffering with these accusing thoughts and negative self-talk for, for quite some time. And it's, it's tormenting him. Thoughts like, you're not a Christian. No God would want you. No Christian would sin like you. You're a fake. And maybe you struggle with, with thoughts like this on a regular basis. Maybe you struggle with accusatory thoughts on a regular basis. But I want you to see and understand that that's your enemy talking. That's not God. That's your enemy talking. Remember, his name means slanderer. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. And that's what he wants to do to you. He wants to make you feel so discouraged and so defeated. He wants to throw your guilt in your face. He wants to make you suffer under the weight of the guilt that Christ bore on the cross for you. He wants to to make you feel false guilt about things that are not actually sin. He wants to make your sin, your actual sin, seem too big for Christ. He wants to make the grace of God in Christ for you seem so small and too small to cover your sin. He wants to accuse you and make you feel discouraged and defeated in the Christian life. 
There's a great Puritan writer, Thomas Brooks, said in his wonderful book, he said in his book, uh, The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he said, God did not give the believer a new heart for it to be rent and torn to pieces by discouragement. God doesn't want you to live the Christian life walking around slumped over, discouraged all the time. He wants you to be encouraged and enjoying fellowship with him. He doesn't want you to feel accused and condemned. God doesn't want you to believe the accusation of the enemy. And so when accusing thoughts like this come, when you engage in that negative, satanic self-talk, you've got to fight. You've got to fight. You've got to be armed with the word of God and with prayer. And you've got to preach those truths to yourself. You've got to preach to yourself the truth of Christ's gospel. I love Martin Luther's advice on this. He's so punk rock. He once said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, I shall be also. You need to be on guard against Satan's accusations and you need to fight against them with the truths of God's word. But then accusation is not the only one of Satan's schemes. We are introduced to Lola and her spiritual lethargy, right? She's, she's not feeling any sort of motivation in the Christian life and, 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 and mission. She doesn't want to read God's word. She doesn't feel like praying. She doesn't care about church or the lostness of her neighbors and coworkers. She's spiritually lethargic, spiritually dull, sluggish, complacent, apathetical, lackadaisical about the things of Christ and his kingdom like a spiritual sloth. And this, this is the very sin that Christ confronts in Laodicea in Revelation 3, 14 to 22, this kind of cold, tepid indifference toward God that God finds repugnant. And you see, our enemy will often try to get us into this place by distracting us and making us more passionate about politics or, or what's on the news or getting obsessed over spiritual or uh, uh, rather conspiracy theories that we find on the the dark corners of the internet or or our favorite Netflix shows or social media presence and all of that by drawing us into thinking that what's most important in this world and in this life is what's happening in D.C. or on the internet, all while doling our hearts and, and spirits to the things of God, making us more and more cold to him and his people. And Jesus' command to those in spiritual lethargy is, is, is to Revelation 3.19, to be zealous and repent. Wake up to the schemes of the enemy that you're being duped by. Be alert to what he's doing and return to Christ. We also heard about Hermione and the problem of, of heresy. Two young men came to her door and, 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 and wanted to talk with her about the scriptures and they were twisting the scriptures and teaching false things that confused her and now she's on the verge of abandoning the true faith for heresy. Heresy is false teaching. And this problem of heresy was particularly mentioned actually to the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, 28 through 31. And as you look at that text and compare that to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, you might actually see this is a crucial part of what Paul is warning them about here in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. 
Many of the, the pieces of spiritual armor have to do with, with uh, adorning yourself with the truth and the word of God. And there are actually corresponding themes with this text in Acts 20, 28-31. Talk of being on guard and being alert. But this isn't just relevant for the church in Ephesus and the elders in Ephesus in that day. It's relevant for us today. We're continually assaulted by unbiblical ideas and beliefs in this world. Calls to change historic Christian beliefs in order to change with the times. Charges of being on the wrong side of history, needing to correct it in order to be on the right side of history. There are cults present who would draw away those who have not adequately armed themselves with the truth of God's word. And so the call here is to devote ourselves to the scriptures, to read them every day, to wrestle with what they say, to let them confront us in our sin and unbelief and to change us where we're wrong. The call is to make the scriptures central in our life together as God's people and to treat them as what they are, the very word of God. We've got to be on guard against Satan's schemes of heresy and false teaching and to be on guard with the word of God. Then we also need to be careful there because here's the thing. We do need to be on guard against heresy, false teaching, but we also need to be on guard against division. You'll remember Dante, self-designated warrior for truth that would often get in fights with other church members over tertiary doctrinal matters and over political ideologies and minor offenses and cultural aspects in the church that he doesn't like. And, and the scriptures take very seriously this sin of division. In fact, Paul will say in Titus 3.10 that as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice have nothing more to do with them. This is important because division can destroy and overthrow churches, the amount of churches that close over carpet color or separate over tertiary doctrinal matters, the amount of Christians that leave churches due to minor political differences or minor offenses or whatever is a tragedy and a poor witness to a watching world. It's awful. And what's more is it's directly opposed to the purpose that God has set forth in the person and work of Jesus. If you were to read earlier in Ephesians, chapters 2 through 4, you'll see how dear church unity is to the heart and purpose of God. And thus, one of Satan's most common schemes is then to divide Christians in churches. He's been seeking to divide God's people ever since Adam blamed Eve in the garden for the fall in Genesis 3. He loves when a Christian takes offense toward another and yet holds that bitterness in their heart, refusing to either let it go and overlook it or to confront it and work things out and forgive it. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You see, anger and bitterness and offense between Christians in the church, if not dealt with, gives Satan an opportunity, a foothold, and he will work his way in there and do unspeakable damage. We must not give it to him. I was reading in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, a while back. And the elf Haldir said that indeed nothing and nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. And similarly, you can see Satan's work most clearly 
in the divisions between those who still oppose him. So you see, we, we must be on guard against the schemes of the devil that we call division. We must strive with all of our hearts for church unity, to be patient with one another, bearing with one another in love, forgiving one another, one another living peaceably with one another so far as it depends on us. But then we also must remember the need for spiritual battle against the scheme of the devil that we might call unbelief. Ulysses and Uma had a daughter that they raised, sharing the gospel with, reading the scriptures to. And yet in her teenage years, it's apparent that she does not believe. She's opposed to the truth of God's word. There's, this, is, this is spiritual warfare here. If you have children, friends, neighbors, coworkers, loved ones who are in a state of unbelief, the problem is not merely an intellectual one. So often do we treat unbelief as merely an intellectual problem that if we can just get, defend the truth rightly and, 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 and defend it rightly, then, then, then we can get the gospel to people and they'll believe it because they disbelieve it for merely intellectual reasons. But that's not the case. The problem is mainly a spiritual one. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, apart from Christ, we're dead in trespasses and sins, following Satan in the ways of this world. And so, you see, if you're engaging in mission and evangelism, you have to approach it as spiritual warfare. In addition to evangelizing, you have to pray that God would open eyes and bind Satan and loose people from slavery to him. Christian, you have to pray for the salvation of your neighbor, your coworker, your loved one, parents. You have to pray for the salvation of your children. In evangelism, you have to engage in this spiritual battle that is more than mere informational exchange or intellectual persuasion. You're going up against the demonic forces that are blinding those that you love. You have to arm yourselves with the truth of God's word and with prayer and dependence upon God. And then lastly, remember Tabitha with her temptation. She was lonely and longing for romantic relationships and so satan threw temptation her way with a young man from work she's slowly drifting away from the church and from spiritual disciplines to avoid conviction and correction and satan will often work this way in our lives that's why paul calls him the tempter in first thessalonians 3 5 satan and demons will will look at the things we observe and buy and do and look at and watch, and they will throw temptations our way based on those realities, much like the way Silicon Valley uses your social media algorithms to advertise and introduce you to new products and media and all that. So Satan will use your, your, your life algorithms, as it were, to tempt you and to draw you into sin. If you struggle with sexual purity... He very well may throw women or men your way and draw your attention to pornography online or to television and movies with overt sexual content. If you're feeling lonely, he very well may bring an opportunity for in, a, in an inappropriate relationship along your path. If you struggle with greed, 
or materialism. He very well may tempt you with corrupt financial dealings or advertisements for things that you don't need that will cost money that you don't have. And, and, and we could go on and on here, but you see, you've got to be on guard against the schemes of the devil in this area of temptation. You have to arm yourselves with the truth of God's word, just like Christ did in the wilderness when he battled against Satan, armed himself with the truth of God's word and depending upon the Lord in prayer. You must arm yourself for battle. Undoubtedly, accusation, lethargy, heresy, division, unbelief, temptation, these are all schemes of the devil, and there are more. But these are schemes in which he has mastered over the the course of human history, schemes in which he is so skilled and brilliant. We have a formidable foe who hates us and who wants to destroy us and destroy those that we love. And so we must be on guard. We must know who our enemy is, and we must know his schemes. We've looked at just a little bit on, on how to fight these schemes. We'll get more into that as the series goes on how to actually fight and withstand. Before we get there, I simply want to to tell you today that you do have strength to fight against these schemes of the devil. Look with me last at the Christian strength. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul exhorts us to be strong, which is an exhortation to action. You're the one who is to put on strength, because as a Christian, the time for you to engage in spiritual battle will undoubtedly come. That's why Paul talks about the the evil day here in verse 13. The evil day is just a day when the schemes of the devil come up against you. That day will come. You need to fight. You need to be strong for that day. But part of what's so interesting here is that this exhortation to be strong is in the imperative form. It is an imperative. You must be strong. But it's in the passive voice. It could be translated as be strengthened or be made strong. And and, and relevant here is that we ought not forget where this strength comes from. It doesn't come from you. It comes from your union with Christ. It comes from the Christ who is alive in you. That's why he tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And his, his might is beyond what you're capable of, capable of in and of yourself and is even capable of that which you can even imagine. This is why Paul closes his prayer in Ephesians 3.20 by saying, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. And, and of course he talks about the same power, the same strength in his prayer in Ephesians 1, starting with verse 19 and on, when he prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
And there's so much that, that, that we don't even have time to cover there. But understand this, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and at work within you. The authority that Christ possesses as the ascended king who is seated above all rulers and powers and authorities over all of those demonic forces of evil in this world, that same power and same authority is at work within you because Christ is in you by the gift of his spirit. And so you can withstand the schemes of the devil. You can withstand his accusation and his temptation and the the temptation to spiritual lethargy. You can fight the spiritual battle against unbelief and heresy and you will be finally victorious because in Christ you can't lose. You can't lose. On December 2nd, 1941, 353 Japanese fighter planes and bombers attacked the Hawaiian military base, Pearl Harbor. And up to this point, World War II had been raging in Europe and and in other parts of the world, but the U.S. had remained unaffiliated and and uninvolved for the most part. And yet Japan's attack on the U.S. that Sunday morning, just before 8 a.m., meant that the U.S. would finally join the Allied forces, which included the U.K. and France and others, and their battle against the Axis powers of Germany and Japan and Italy. And on that very night, with news of the attack, with the knowledge that this attack would bring in the U.S. with all of its military and industrial might into union with the Allied forces, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister in the U.K., wrote this in his diary that night. He wrote, Ah, so we won. Make no mistake, the UK still had a fight on their hands. They still had to battle. They still engaged in battle, but they did so with the might and power of their most powerful ally. And so Churchill wrote, ah, so we won. Friends, Christ died and rose and ascended to achieve victory over Satan and demons in the world and your flesh. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you as a channel of his resurrection might within you. And so with Christ risen and ascended and within you by the Holy Spirit, we can say like Churchill, ah, so we won. You don't have to give in to temptation and lethargy. You don't have to succumb to the the, the accusations of Satan or heresy or division. You can advance the gospel and overcome unbelief by prayer in the powerful gospel of God because Christ is victorious and where he is, we shall be also. Ah, so we won. And now we're gonna continue to explore the ways in which Christ equips us and strengthens us and furnishes us for victory in the coming weeks. But as we move forward in the series, I want you to rest in this reality and remember that victory is already ours in Christ because he's won, he's died, he's risen, he's ascended, and he will one day come again to crush Satan under our feet forevermore. Because he's won, we will win. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the reality of our victory in Christ. We give you thanks for the the gift of strength in Christ by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. As we go out this, this next week, undoubtedly to face the schemes of the devil, to hear accusation, to face temptation, to face temptation to be spiritually lethargic or or divisive, 
As we face the unbelief of, of those around us, equip us with the strength and grace of Jesus Christ to live this Christian life and to battle against Satan and his schemes for the glory of your name and for the good of those that you've called us to love and serve. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.